Our text for today is from Judges 3, 11 through 15. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Coming in hot at the bottom. Good to see you, Jake. Um, um, our, our microphone, our, our uh, wireless microphone is at the microphone shop. So Sean has been going without a mic. I'm not um, as gifted to him as projecting my voice. So this is what we're working with this morning. Um, I appreciate Sean talking about Martin Luther King Jr. and the holiday. Uh, we're going to celebrate that as a family. I would encourage you, if you guys ever in a, the city of Atlanta... Um, which my job takes me there quite often, I would really encourage you guys to go by the Martin Luther King uh, Memorial, and you can go to his church, and everything is set up as it was. You can sit in the pews, and they have his recordings of his preaching just on a loop. And when I went there, quite a few years ago, I went there, and I just sat in the pews and just listened and just, like, wept at how God used this man with the issue of injustice and race in our country. Um, and so I'm really, I would really encourage you to go visit that. If you're ever um, in Atlanta, take the time to go and see that and sit there and reflect a little bit. It's a really, really cool place to do that. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Judges chapter 3. This is going to be an interesting morning. Um, you heard part of the text. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're actually going to look at the rest of chapter 3. We're going to look at all of chapter 4, and then we're going to look at chapter 5. So there was a lot, a lot to cover, um, and in doing so, I'm not going to be able to get into all the nooks and the crannies of the text. It's going to be somewhat of a flyby. I'm going to have to move fairly quickly with our time, but hopefully God will teach us some things through his word this morning. Um, and again, Judges is a little bit of a bizarre book if you're not familiar with it. Um, reading it just off the cuff, if, if you don't do any work and you just kind of glance at it and you've never read it before, let me give you uh, a little bit of an idea of what we're going to hear today in these three chapters. Um, we're going to meet a man named Ehud who might be crippled, and he kills this king named Eglon, who's this fat kind of job of the hut character, by stabbing him with an 18-inch dagger into the fat of his belly. So far that the dagger actually gets lodged into his stomach and dung comes out, which is ironically the way Ehud gets away. Uh, we'll also look at a woman named Deborah, who is a judge, and she goes into battle in which a commander she fights, who happens to be a sex trafficking rapist, flees and hides in the tent of a non-Jewish woman named Jael. When the commander thinks he's safe and falls asleep, Jael takes out a tent peg and hammers it through his temple to kill him. And then the nation of Israel sings a song. That's what happens in these three chapters. And again, if you don't do the hard work of studying the historical context and the overall um, understanding of the Bible, it seems really odd. It seems really strange. So let's do our best to try and 
figured that out this morning. Sean said, oh, yeah, I should preach on judges. Yeah, let's, let's pick this one. That's a great one to pick. That's idiot. Um, so uh, if you weren't here last week, we started the book of Judges. I think Sean did a great job of really laying out the history and um, the context of this book. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back online and listen to that. If you're going to stay with us, that's really going to help frame some of your thinking for the next couple of weeks as we dive into this book. But let me just give a really quick recap to remind us of the purpose of this book. And the purpose of this book is found in the last chapter of the book, um, chapter 21, verse 25. And it, this phrase is mentioned a couple times, but it's on purpose mentioned as the last verse that kind of hangs over all of the, the book of Judges. And it says this, it says uh, in 21, verse 25, it says that at this time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. At this time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Sean explained last week that really this issue of not having a king wasn't predominantly that there weren't leaders. There were leaders, even as we see in this story, but that Israel had forgotten God as their king. That in the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2, God sets up his kingdom, and we are meant to be his subjects. And it was perfect harmony, but then chapter 3 of Genesis happens, and we make a decision. His subjects make a decision to choose not him, and all of the kingdom gets fractured, right? Do you see, do you see the similar language? Everybody did what was right in his own eyes and judges. In Genesis chapter 3, what does Eve do? And what does Adam do? They do what's right in their own eyes, they don't totally discount God or say he's not real, but they kind of just have this mentality that seeps in like, no, I know God says to do this and obey, but I think like my way might be a little bit better. And that continues to happen throughout the story of life and the story of the Bible all the way up until Judges where we see it hanging over the whole book. When we forget God, we start to do what's right in our own eyes and it leads to destruction. And that's kind of the verse that hangs over every piece of the book of Judges. And this pattern begins to happen in this book, and we get to see it in different characters. We, we talked about this cycle that happens because of not remembering God and doing what's right in our own eyes. If we have this slide, this is what we talked about last week. And the first thing is sin, right, which is imperfection when we start to do what's right in our own eyes. And we, we unpacked what that looked like culturally at the time where these people were supposed to drive out certain types of people and they didn't obey God all the way. And so they start mingling in with these people and they start serving their gods. They still want to serve Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but they start serving these other gods. And God does not play with that. He doesn't deal with that. It's destructive and it's called sin. And then that leads to servitude, which is really like discipline, this idea that, um, that God raises up oppressors against the nation of Israel, which I think this is really interesting. Not only does God say, listen, you want to go do that and, and serve those other guys? Okay, okay, go ahead and do that. See how it works. He doesn't just do that, but because the nation are his people, he says, listen, I'm going to discipline them to the point of remembering me because he loves them. I'm not going to let my son or my daughter do something to, to a point of destruction because I love them. I'm going to care for them. And so God, every time we see this in cycle two in the book of Judges, God is the one that raises up the opposition. 
which sometimes for us is hard, right? Like if you think you have a really hard circumstance and you're going, God, why is this happening? And you think, I know God is all-powerful. I know he loves me. Why is he letting this thing happen to me? Could it be that God is putting that circumstance in your life because there's an idol that needs to come to the surface and he can scrape it away so you can live freely with him? I know that happens in my life when I get caught in this, this second part of the cycle of, of situations happening and God in his goodness sends hard things so that I'll trust him. And I love this quote from Charles C. West, who's a missionary, and he was a, a professor of seminary at, at Princeton. He says, We turn to God for help when our foundations are shaking, only to learn that he is the God who is shaking them. Is God doing some circumstance in your life because he wants to change and mold you to love him more, to rid you of that sin that's in your life? So that's the second part of the cycle, and then that leads to supplication or the nation crying out to God in repentance of saying, God, we need you. We remember you now. Please come and save us from this problem. That leads to uh, number four in the cycle, which is salvation. Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, sends a deliverer, and we see that in all these different pockets of stories and judges. And then because of that, the fifth part, the land experience is rest, so silence. And this is, uh, in the original language, it means like uh, nobody was bothering the land. Nobody was bothering the people of Israel. But then you see what happens. The cycle repeats itself because what happens is you start to get comfortable and you think, okay, I'm good, I'm good. I, don't, I, I think I got this, God. I'm, I'm good. I needed you before, but right now I think I can take care of it. I, I'm kind of understanding. And then you just slowly drift. And it just erodes your trust in God until you start relying on yourself, depending on yourself. And then you get caught in that cycle of sin. And it goes on and on and on. That's the framework for the book of Judges. So we're going to look at two cycles this morning in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of what this framework looks like in these different characters. So because there's all these crazy names of people and places, um, we got a slide here of the two main characters that we're going to look at. It's a little bit Street Fighter 2-esque if, uh, if you played that, if you were my age. But we've got the King Eglon, who he is the king of Moab of the Moabites. King Eglon, uh, what we know about the text, we'll, we'll hear it in a second, is that in verse 17 it says he was a very fat man. Um, now we have to understand the history and the cultural context of that statement is that we might look at somebody being lazy or in our culture, but in that culture it, it was a sign of prosperity. It was a sign of wealth. If you had a lot of money, you would eat food. The, kind of the bigger you were, the more power you had. And so we know uh, this king was somewhat smart because he, he made alliances with people that hated the nation of Israel, and he basically took over the place. And then God raises up this man named Ehud, and he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, he's left-handed, and we get to see how God uses him in this story. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this chapter, the rest of the chapter. And, and when I mean read, we're going to listen to it because I'm not trying to read all these names. I'm just not 
that would not be good for anybody. So um, if you're not familiar, if you don't have the Bible on your phone, a smartphone, there's the Bible app, the U version, that has all these different translations. It's got reading plans. And you can just hit play, and it will actually read the scriptures to you. So if I'm driving in the car, I'll read, there, there's like no excuse for us not to have Bible intake happening in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play, um, starting in chapter 3 of Judges, uh, verse 12, all the way through the chapter, and then we'll kind of unpack kind of the meaning and how does it apply to us. So, people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Hear it? And the Lord strengthened Bible, Eglon, listen. the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud the son of Girah the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about ten thousand of the Moabites all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Okay, that's kind of a strange story. Let's see what we can learn from it. Again, we're not going to be able to look at every single verse, but what is the main thing that we can pull out of this text? What is God trying to teach us as we see this cycle of judges and look at how is God delivering the people from Israel in this fourth cycle or this fourth part of the cycle. Um, and the thing is, I looked at it and I studied it and I prayed about it. The thing that came, kept coming to the surface was this, that just as Ehud is Israel's unexpected savior, he foreshadows our unexpected savior. 
Just as Ehud is Israel's unexpected Savior, he foreshadows our unexpected Savior. Think about the story we just listened to. Everything about the way Ehud was used to deliver God's people was unexpected. Right? He was, Ehud used his weakness to gain victory. He's an unlikely choice from the tribe of Benjamin, which historically was the least of the 12 tribes. Nobody's expecting Ehud to be the deliverer. The author makes it a point that he is um, left-handed. He says it a couple times, and not just because it's an it's important plot to the story of how he gets by the guards, but you have to really understand the cultural context of right and left-handedness in the Bible. Listen to what Pastor and author Tim Keller says about the significance of that issue in the culture. He says this, If you look up the references in the Bible to right hand, you will find that they're all quite positive. God swears by his right hand, he has pleasures by his right hand, and his chosen one sits at his right hand. Why? Since most people were right-handed, the right hand was a symbol of power and ability. You fought with your sword in your right hand. Judges literally says that Ehud was unable to use his right hand in verse 15. It's very possible that Ehud's right hand was paralyzed or disabled in some way. In a society which was even more cruel than our own to people who were physically handicapped, he would have been considered ineffective. So Ehud would not have had the appearance of a deliverer, of a savior to the nation of Israel. And he would achieve his victory all alone. Ehud makes his sword alone. He kind of goes with everybody to, to offer the thing to the king, and then they turn back, and they're going home. And Ehud says, no, I'm going to go back, and he, he walks it alone to the king face to face. And like Ehud, Jesus crushed the people's enemies by his own weakness. God's people expected to, to Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government with force and we looked all this last year in, in Mark, the book of Mark, and Jesus doesn't institute his kingdom that way. They keep waiting for him to come in power, and Jesus doesn't do it like that. He's unexpected in his methods. We wouldn't expect Jesus to be the deliverer. In Isaiah 53, the prophet is prophesying about the upcoming Messiah. Listen to what he says. He says, he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And like Ehud, he achieved his victory all alone. At the end of the story of Jesus going to the cross, he's betrayed, he's left, he's all alone. And ultimately, the Father leaves him on the cross where there's that moment where God is abandoned. Jesus is abandoned. Tim Keller sums it up this way again. He says, in these historical narratives, then God is showing the world that his salvation will not come in a Hollywood way at all. It will come from an outsider born in a manger through weakness, not that the world calls strength, through defeat, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. Just as Ehud is Israel's unexpected savior, he foreshadows our unexpected Savior in the work of Jesus. It's all unexpected. Even when you ask somebody, you say, hey, how do, how do you get to God? How do you, if you ask the, the random normal person on the street, what are they going to tell you? 
be a good person, do the right thing. And, and God, God, that's not what God says to get to God. God says it's only through the work of the cross. It's nothing you do. That's unexpected. That does not make sense to us. And just like Ehud, Jesus changes everything by defeating death and delivering us. So that's the first story. The second story we're going to look at is in chapter 4. Here are some of the main characters. We've got Sisera, who's the commander of the army of King Jabin of Canaan. Now, we talked a little bit about the Canaanites last week, Sean mentioned. Um, Canaanites were some bad, evil people, man. I mean, they were nasty. They're sacrificing their children. They're killing each other. It's just, it's all not good. And there's multiple times when God says, you need to wipe out these people because they are just evil. Um, Sean referenced a book, which, which I've read, which is really, really helpful by a guy named Chris Wright. Um, the title of the book is The God I Don't Understand. And he has two chapters devoted to, like, what do we do with this issue of the Canaanites and God saying, wipe them all out? That doesn't seem very godly. But when you start to read the historical context, you start to see why God was making this decision. So Sisera is the commander of that group, and he is a bad dude. He ran what we would consider kind of a sex trafficking ring at the time. He was continually raping and killing people. He was just nasty. He was powerful. It says in the text we're about to read, he had 900 chariots, which are kind of like these tanks, like he was a military force to be reckoned with. And he kind of just did whatever he wanted. And it says that he oppressed the people in Israel. So you see even the downward spiral that's happening in this book of Judges, where even in Ehud's time, like the king um, basically came in and and took over him, but he didn't oppress them, right? It just says that the Israelites serve them. One chapter later, you see that this king is actually oppressing the people for 20 years. And that's when they cry out to God. So that's sister. We have Deborah, who's a prophetess and a judge in Israel. Prophetess or prophet is somebody that hears from the Lord and speaks to the people on his behalf. And so Deborah would hear from the Lord and she would communicate to the nation of Israel. And she was also a judge which meant if there were disputes that would break out, they would come to her and they would ask her, hey, is this right or this right? And she would help make sense of the issues. She had wisdom. Barak, who we'll hear from, we don't know a ton about him. We know he's living in the area of Kadesh, which is the first Canaanite city that Joshua conquers in the book of Joshua. He must have been some type of military leader because Deborah calls him in to lead this battle. And then we have Jael who is the wife of Hebert the Canaanite, or the Kenite, sorry. And um, what's important to know, apparently that there was an alliance between Heber and the Canaanite king of Jabin in verse 17 that we'll see. So as we read the story, you'll see when Sisera leaves and flees the battle, he kind of rolls up to this tent, Jael's tent. He thinks he's got an ally. He thinks he's in a safe place, which will be important to see in a minute. So if you have your Bible, look down at chapter 4. We're going to listen and read along with all of chapter 4. Go ahead. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. 
and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, Hold up, that's who reigned the last in Hazor. Chapter. The should commander... Be the next, should be the next file. If you got it. No, that's right. You got it right. I was just testing you. Good work. Let's pick it back up. The of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harisheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael the wife of Heber took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, until he went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan 
until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. People of Israel. <clears throat> Let's talk about this. <clears throat> the thing that comes up to the surface, if I have to pick one thing in this chapter that I think we can take from is this. That God uses multiple people with multiple personalities to accomplish his purposes for his glory and not our own. God uses multiple people with multiple personalities to accomplish his purposes for his glory and not our own. How would you feel if you were Barak? Like, think about it. Like, Deborah gives this, like, basically un, uh, like this, this task that's impossible to do. You got to go and you got to defeat this dude that's the baddest dude in all the land. He's got all the military, and you have to have all the courage to go attack him and beat his army. Oh, by the way, you're not going to get the credit. You're not going to get the glory. We're not going to be chanting your name at the end of the battle, but you have to do all the work. Has that ever happened at your job where your boss gives you a task that seems impossible and you kind of say, okay, I'm going to do it. And you work really hard. You're grinding it out. You feel good about the project and, and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm doing all the right things even though it's really hard. The task gets accomplished. The next week you go into a staff meeting and your boss just says, hey, we had somebody that really did it this week, man. Like, and then they point to your coworker, and they're like, can we all give them a round of applause? And you're like, what is this person talking about? Right? Like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm the one that got the deal done. This person didn't do anything. They were minimal in the execution. That's what's happening here. Like, it's really hard for us to not take the credit for our work. And it's interesting when you lay these chapters side by side, you see that um, in chapter 3, God is only using one Savior, right, to accomplish his purposes. And in this chapter, it doesn't say that he raises up Deborah. It doesn't say he raises up Jael. It doesn't, it doesn't, the text doesn't say that because it's implied that God is the one that gets the glory. God is the deliverer in this story, and he uses all these different people to accomplish his purposes. I mean, I can just think if, if, if I'm Barack and Barack, his name's not Barack. That's our president. It's Barak. That's what it is. Um, if, uh, if you're in the battle and this dude flees, which is like every movie ever, right? Like that's where they get this. There's a big battle. And then like the main villain, like sneaks away and runs. And then the hero goes, that, that this is where this is it. It's in your Bible people. And so that's where Hollywood gets this idea. So he bolts out, he sees the tent. He thinks, okay, I'm going to be safe. And he goes in and then Brock's barracks charging him. He goes up and he's like, okay, like jail comes up to him. I've got the guy you're looking for. So he's thinking, okay, this is it. Like, this is my chance. I'm going to go kill this dude. I'm going to get the glory. They're going to be singing my name. And he walks in, and the dude's already dead. And he's got to feel a little deflated. Like, what? And it's interesting, historically, that the tent, tent peg, that whole idea that, that taking down tents was considered, setting up and, and taking down tents was considered a woman's job. So jail's like really like, it's like she's got a kitchen appliance here. I know it sounds super evil and barbaric for us, but these were the tools she had to use. And I think if we just read the story on the surface, we kind of feel like Sisera's like, 
he's like the innocent victim, right? Like, the dude was just running for his life, and he goes in to get some rest. He thinks he's safe in an ally's house, and he's tired. He falls asleep, and he's defenseless. Like, it's not his fault. And that is like the farthest from the truth (laughs) that we need to understand. He is anything but innocent. This dude was evil. He was evil. And I know it's kind of hard to stomach this idea, but this is, this is really true. We need to hear this, church. Like, God will use violence to end evil. He will. Like, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming, like, sliding down a rainbow, giving out hugs, passing out gummy bears. Like, the book of Revelation says he's coming on a horse with his robe dipped in blood, wielding a sword to end evil. Not because he's, because he's ending evil. And that's what it's going to take to end evil. And let's not be fooled either. Like, we're, like we haven't done the evil things that Sisera has done. But we're not innocent at all. We've made mistakes, right? In God's economy, life and death is the currency. Sin is serious. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. It's what I deserve for my imperfection from a holy God. And God is going to use violence. And he used the most violent act in all of the scriptures because he is a just God to pardon me. He just did it on himself in the form of Jesus on the cross. We need to understand that God is going to rid all of evil. And he gives us freedom and salvation through the cross, something that he bears. He bears the violence and the destruction. And God uses unique people, multiple people with multiple personalities to tell that story to the world that needs to hear it. That they're stuck in these cycles of destruction, and there's a way to have freedom, and that's through the gospel. And it's clear, especially as we look, we're going to peek at chapter 5, that God deserves all the glory for the victory. God uses multiple people with multiple personalities in this story to accomplish his purposes for his glory and not theirs. And this is the body of Christ. This is, do you see? This is the church. That God uses multiple people with multiple personalities for his glory and not ours. We need each other. God's wired us differently. Not so we get the credit, but so he gets the credit. God is continuing to do what he needs to do through his church to free people that he loves and cares about. So that's chapter 4. Chapter 5, we're not going to read or listen to all of it. Um, What you need to know about chapter 5 is that it's a song. The whole chapter is a song. It's written that way. Um, It's written and sung by Deborah, who's the prophetess that we heard from. Uh, And again, it's clear as you read it, I would encourage you to go read it sometime today, this afternoon or sometime this week, that all the glory and credit goes to God doesn't talk about how great these people, it talks about how great God is. 
And God is reminding his people through a song. And I love that reality of being reminded that it's God. It has to be God. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, which God is reminding his people of his goodness as they're about to enter the promised land. Because we're forgetful, we forget. And God is saying, don't forget. Don't forget I rescued you out of Egypt. Don't forget I fed you every day. Don't forget I led you. Because you're, you're going to forget. And I love this verse in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 17 and on. It says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers to this day. And he goes on to say, listen, if you forget me, you're going to start serving other gods, which is exactly what happens in the book of Judges. This chapter runs parallel to Miriam's song in Exodus 15, right after the, the nation crosses, God rescues them, and they cross the sea, the Red Sea, and they sing a song for a whole chapter. And I, I love music. Um, I, I love it. Uh, almost all music. I don't like country music. My wife does, but I can't stand it. But almost every other genre of music I really, really enjoy. Music is always playing in our house. And um, I love when we get to sing together on Sundays. And maybe you don't have that love of music. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're just kind of like, okay, the, the music's nice, whatever. Josh is a nice guy, but I'm really here to hear the message. Um, I want to hear the word preached. Let me just give a, a quick apologetic kind of as, a, as we wrap up of, of why music was foundational and formational for the nation of Israel and why it should be for us. When you look at God's heart for setting words to melodies, it's evident even from a casual reading of the book of Psalms, which is the largest book in all the Bible, which is all... Songs, right? Psalm 96, 1 and 2 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 47, 6, sing to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. That's three verses you're commanded to sing seven times in those verses, commanded. It's not a suggestion. It's not, oh, I don't like this style of music. We're commanded to sing. And all throughout the Bible, there's over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to singing. And in the New Testament, we're commanded not once but twice to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another when we meet. Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. Bob Coughlin He's a worship pastor, and he's, he's written on this subject of, like, why do we sing in church? Listen to what he says. Why does God so often tell us not simply to praise him, but to sing his praises when we meet? Why not just pray and preach? Why sing? Why are God's people throughout history always singing? Why words and music and not just words alone? Why does God want us to sing? One reason is that God himself sings. In Zephaniah 3.17, God exalts his people with loud singing. On the eve of his crucifixion in Matthew 26, Jesus sang hymns with his disciples. 
We worship a triune God who sings, and he wants us to be like him. It's in our nature to sing because God sings. Oliver Sacks is um, an expert in this area of studying the, mu- the, the way music affects your brain, the science of your brain. Listen to what he has to say. He says, every culture has songs and rhymes to help children learn the alphabet, numbers, and other lists. Even as adults, we are limited in our ability to memorize a series or hold to them in our mind unless we use pneumatic devices or patterns. And the most powerful of these devices are rhyme and meter and song. So there's something that happens in our brain when we sing that helps us remember. And you see it in Alzheimer's patients. They can't remember the name of their spouse or their kids, but they can sing a song that they knew from this age. Because there's something about song that captures us and helps our memory. And in Deuteronomy 31, God himself uses music to help his people remember his words. As Israel's about to enter the promised land, God instructs Moses to teach Israel a song. And listen to what it says. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. When they're up against it, this, this song will confront them. Have you ever been confronted by the words that we sing on Sunday? I hope God's Spirit uses it to confront you to the truth that He's good and we need Him and we need to be reminded of that. And we do that through singing. It's part of how God has wired us to sing His praises. We need that for memory because we forget. We forget that God is our king and we start to do what's right in our own eyes. And we need to be reminded of that truth. To close, Tim Keller sums it up like this when he looks at um, Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. Listen to what he says. He says, setting chapter 4 and chapter 5 alongside each other, the narrator encourages us to have a chapter 5 perspective on all of our lives as well as a chapter 4 one. Chapter 5 sees God's, behind, God's hand behind all things, celebrates success and honors him supremely, and has a continual note of praise. We can and should live our lives in order our memories, not only historically, but theologically. Not simply recollecting what happened or what we did, but searching out what God was doing. This keeps us from over-honoring ourselves in success or despairing in our struggles. Part of the key to enjoying peace is to be continually praising the Lord for what He has done and is doing for us. Because the story we tell of our lives is not so much about us, as it is about him. Let's pray. Father, thanks for being a good God uh, that loves his people. And God, thanks that you'll do things that don't seem to make sense to us to put us in a right relationship with you, to deliver us, to save us. And the ultimate example of that was the cross. God, we need to be reminded I pray that you would use the scriptures, God, you would use music to remind us of that beauty and that truth. 
that, God, we would sing loud, that you would be honored and glorified as we lift our voices to you. We love you, and God, we need you. We pray this in your son's name.